Well, my wife and I have been married 28 years, and when we went through premarital counseling, we received some excellent advice. The pastor who officiated our wedding said, don't spend your meager money buying cheap furniture and a bunch of junk that you're going to replace as soon as you're able. Invest in memories. Travel. Experience things together. And so we registered for travel items like backpacks and Brit Rail passes, and we honeymooned backpacking through Europe or through Great Britain. And then in grad school, we saved up and we spent several weeks touring Europe before we started a family. And that good wisdom has proven true in our life by the memories that we made, the experiences that we shared, and that was a good investment in our marriage. Conversely, a friend of mine who's been married about the same length of time was advised by a coworker, okay, so when you go on your honeymoon, don't shave, don't shower, don't brush your teeth, don't comb your hair for the week or two weeks, whatever it is. And when you come back home, you want to volunteer to cook the first week's meal and you want to make them all inedible. Then you want to do the first week's dishes and ruin the pans, break the plates, chip the pots. Then you want to do the laundry, making sure that you bleach the clothes, shrink the clothes, and take particular care to ruin some of your wives' favorite items. And basically the goal of this campaign, and he was not joking, was you want to set the marital bar so low that if your wife gets basic hygiene from her husband, she's going to be thrilled and elated for the rest of her ministry. Now, thankfully, he did not heed that very terrible marital advice. Otherwise, it would have been a very unhappy, short-lived marriage. But all of us have received good counsel, bad counsel, wise words, foolish words. And some we've heeded, and they've borne fruit in our life. And that's the message of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. The counsel we hear and heed is borne out in the acts that we do. And as Forrest Gump says, stupid is as stupid does, and we've all done that. Or as Jesus said, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And we want to listen to wisdom from above, not from below, so that we experience righteousness and peace and not wickedness and discord. James is going to tell us three things in these verses. That wisdom is displayed in good behavior that false wisdom comes from below and we need to ignore it, whereas we must heed the true wisdom which comes from God above. Let's look at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now to be wise biblically is to have skill in living because you're living life according to God's word and ways. So last summer, we looked at the book of Proverbs, which was about wisdom, fearing the Lord so that we listen to his voice, believing what he teaches, obeying what he commands, and then we walk in his ways. And that's the highway of holiness that leads us to heaven. Conversely, those who ignore this stay off the straight and narrow and find themselves on the many briars and brackish paths that life has to offer. Similarly, understanding is a word which means being knowledgeable in a way that makes one effectual in the exercise of that knowledge. It's applied knowledge, it's expertise, it's skill at something, it's having a trade like welding or carpentry or plumbing. It's not just having head knowledge, but knowledge that can be applied. And these two words together are to characterize God's people and the way that God gives us to demonstrate to the, word, to the world the goodness of our God. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 4, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me so that you should do them in the land that you are entering to possess. So keep and do them 
for this is your wisdom and your understanding, the same two words that James picks up, in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Same two words. God revealed himself to Moses at Sinai, and then he brought that word down to Israel. But it wasn't enough that they could claim to know a wise and understanding God. It wasn't enough that they could claim to be wise and understanding or even know what that wise and understanding teaching was if it went unapplied. The way that we demonstrate the goodness and the wisdom of our God is by applying that in our life in wisdom and in understanding. So in 1899, a representative from Missouri went and spoke at Congress and said these words, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats. Frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You've got to show me. In other words, I'm from a state that's not filled with gullible people. I don't need your empty promises that I bring back. Give me something practical that I can prove. Which is why the motto of Missouri is the? The show me state. Well, Christianity is a show me religion. Don't just tell me. Don't just say. Don't just preach. Practice. Talk. Walk. Christianity if we are truly to prove it, we must love one another as Christ loved us. If we truly believe that Jesus is our Lord, then we will do as he says. If we claim to love God, then we will show it by obeying God. If we claim to follow Jesus as our Lord, that fruit will be borne out in our lives. Christianity is a show-me religion. And if there is, Missouri is the show-me state of our nation, James is the show-me book of our New Testament. Because this has been a recurring theme in the first three chapters so far. James says in 122, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you think that you are a Christian, but you bear no fruit in your life, you're deluding yourself. You're not deluding others. They know you're a hypocrite. They know we're hypocrites. We are to practice what we preach. We are to walk what we talk. He said in 126, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. What God considers pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He said in chapter 2, What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but he has no works? Can that kind of empty profession of faith save them? If a brother or sister is without clothing, and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? Even so, faith without deeds is worthless. He said in 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well, the de demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's not enough to claim faith unless you show the fruit of that faith. It's not enough to be orthodox in your doctrine if you don't live according to that doctrine. Now, when my wife and I were involved at Camp's Crusade in college, they used to ask the question, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a convicting question, isn't it? If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would the prosecuting attorney have enough evidence from your life to convict you? And that's true for all of us. Now, the good behavior that we should be manifesting the wisdom and understanding in is, uh, in is a word that literally means lovely or attractive. Like the stones in the temple were lovely. Like beautiful fruit hanging from a tree is lovely. Because when we see wisdom and understanding put in practice, 
It's attractive. It draws us. It's winsome. And so when you see well-behaved children or courteous young men or servant-hearted young ladies or humble husbands, respectful wives, couples that love one another, older couples that still hold hands, there's a winsomeness and attractiveness that draws us to that. Uh, my wife and I know a family that has seven children. They're missionaries in Mexico. And their entire family is a testimony. When we went down there on mission trips, from the young kids to the old, they were our translators. They were helping us with backyard Bible clubs. They were going out on the streets to invite people to the evening events. And then the couple was such a warm, lovely household. The one time when I went to Mexico City and this gentleman came to pick me up, and he had been traveling and was just returning with us, and we drove from Mexico City to his city, two miles north. And when we arrived at his house at 11 o'clock at night, there was a large crowd standing outside the doorstep on the rumor of his return. That this man was so beloved by his community. He had been traveling. He had been away. There was a rumor that he was coming back. They didn't know exactly when. And so there were a dozen to a dozen and a half people on his doorstep, 11 o'clock at night, just to have him come back. That was the light that he bore. So he was tired from the travels. He came in, opened up the door. And if you've ever been to Mexico and you know that beautiful, hospitable culture, we enjoyed three hours of fellowship because they just, this man was winsome in his family and everything about him. James specifies a particular attribute of winsome, namely gentleness. Gentleness is the quality, this is according to the standard dictionary of New Testament Greek, of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Humility, gentleness, meekness in the older favorable sense of the term. Uh, the meekness that made uh, Atticus Finch the number one hero voted by the American Film Institute after 100 years of film. The greatest hero that film had produced in a century was Atticus Finch in the strength of his gentleness. Uh, number five on that list was Marshall Kane from High Noon and the gentleness of his strength. It was perfectly modeled by Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We're commanded to put on a heart of gentleness, to conduct ourselves with all gentleness, to defend our faith and to correct our opponents with gentleness. We restore trespassers with a spirit of gentleness. Christians are to be characterized by gentleness. Christ said, I am meek and humble in heart. And so we are to be meek and humble in the manifestation of the wisdom that God gives us. There is no harshness in Christianity. There shouldn't be. Uh, there was a famous debater. He was a theology professor at the University of Pittsburgh, or actually Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was brilliant. He was logical. He was knowledgeable. And it was said of him that he won every argument and lost every debate. On every point of the argument, he was more knowledgeable, more precise, had a faster mind, more articulate, but he was so belligerent. He had this kind of growling bear of a demeanor. And at the end of time, you were rooting for the other guy because this guy was so harsh. And that's exactly what we're not supposed to be. And that's what James warns us against in verses 14 through 16. But, on the other hand, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, from God, but is earthly, natural, demonic. And the, pro the product of it, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, jealousy is resentment over another person's achievement or success. Someone gets promoted and you resent it because you wanted that promotion. 
Someone is praised and it leaves a sour taste in your mouth because you wanted that praise. You wanted that acknowledgement. Someone is blessed and there's a turmoil in your stomach because you wanted that blessing. We look out there, see the good things that other people receive and enjoy, and whether they deserve them or not, there's something sour. There's something bitter. It hardens our heart. It jaundices our eyes. And jealousy is bitter because it's often tied to selfish ambition. We want selfishly to get ahead. We wanted the promotion. We wanted the blessing. We wanted the praise, even at the expense of others. And those two things devastate communities. Shakespeare called jealousy that green-eyed monster which mocks the meat it feeds on. Jealousy makes us like the Hulk that just wants to smash and destroy when our eyes turn green because how come they got that and I didn't? And that resentful bitterness that we bear with us that ruins relationships is so destructive because really what we're looking is to be advanced and not just in and of itself, we want to be better than those around us. Uh, several studies have confirmed the fact that people would rather be paid less if it meant them still being paid more than those around them. So if you were given the opportunity to get a $500 a week raise, but knowing that your coworkers would get $750, they would rather get a raise of $500 if their coworkers only got $250. Even though we would be absolutely, in actual terms, better off getting more money, we would take less money if it means I'm better than my peers because we are that petty. We are that small, we are that spiteful, and ultimately, we are that proud, which is why he says that arrogance lies against the truth. We claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but we belie that fact with our pride. We claim to be disciples of Jesus, but we belie that fact with our ambition. We claim to serve a God who is love, who gives good gifts to everyone undeservedly, and yet we belie that fact with our jealousness over the good that other people have that we want. And all of this contradicts our profession. And these three things, James says, comes from below. And he's gonna take us three steps down into that ugly, smelly swamp. Earthly, natural, demonic. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance are earthly, not heavenly. That is, they resonate with the wisdom of this world. So the wisdom of this world is, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, so you ought to be the most vicious dog at the pack. It's a rat race out there, so claw, claw and climb your way to the top. And you've all heard, heard this kind of worldly wisdom. Uh, when I was in college, I started out as a business major, and we were studying one night as a group for a particular uh, class that we had. And while we were studying, a person comes in and said, hey, I've got a friend who's in another section of this class and I have his copy of the exam. And we can just study the exam, learn the answers, and then we can all go home and get a good night's rest. And two of us walked out of the room because we refused to cheat, and everybody else got out their notebooks to start copying down the exam so that they get better grades than us. Uh, right after high school, I had the opportunity to go to summer school at the University of Pennsylvania because I had really wanted to attend the Wharton School of Business, an elite business school. And when I got there on campus and they were orienting us, we were advised not to leave our computers or our books or our notebooks on the library tables when we went to the bathroom because oftentimes fellow students would come and steal them or destroy them to ruin their, their competition in the classroom. And this is an elite Ivy League school, but the wisdom of the school was there's only one number one. Everyone else is the number two and following losers. 
So the way you get ahead isn't just by studying and excelling and being diligent, it's by crashing your competition intentionally if you can. And that's the wisdom of the world and it resonates, but it's not what Christians do. We don't listen to that worldly wisdom. It's also natural. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance resonate with our flesh. That word natural means devoid of the spirit. It's our fallen flesh that just naturally desires these things. That instinctively, we are jealous, ambitious, and proud. And we prove it every week. So when you're driving to the grocery store, and it's 105, and you see the closer parking spot that might even have that little bit of shade, and then you see another car eyeball it at the exact same time, do you defer? Or do you accelerate, angle in, hit your blinker, give the blare, because you deserve that spot, not them? Or in the short line at the grocery store, or the short line at Chick-fil-A, you and another car, you and another shopper coming in, do you hit your brake? Do you welcome them in? You might at Chick-fil-A, that's a different environment. But in general, <laughs> we have these subtle ways, I'm not gonna make eye contact, I'm gonna pretend I don't see them, while I cut them off of the lane to get, the, to save five minutes? To save a little bit? Are we that petty? Yes, indeed, we are. <laughs> when you come in on Sunday morning and there's one last kolache, one last chocolate donut, do you pass it by and leave it for the next one in? No, I deserve that kolache. I deserve that donut. Every day, every week, our flesh reveals that we are naturally jealous, selfish, ambitious, and proud. And we can't listen to our flesh because it will lead us down into contentious paths that ruin communities. And he says, not only is it earthly, not only is it natural, sometimes the whisperings in our ears are actually demonic. Because that kind of envy, that kind of jealousy, that kind of spite, that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride, that kind of willingness to harm others, to put myself a little bit ahead, that's of the pit. And so if you've read Dante's Inferno, down in the descending levels, the demons are clawing over one another and torturing one another because hell is hellish. It's the, it's the place where there's an utter absence of love, of graciousness, of charity. Uh, when you get to the bottom of Milton's hell, there at the very center of hell is a city called, anyone happen to know? Pandemonium. This discordant, violent chaos because that's where pan, all, daimonion, demons live. Where the demons are, there is discord because there is pride and there is egregious jealousy. In Screwtape's last letter to his nephew, so if you've read the Screwtape letters by C.S. Lewis and you get to the very last letter, here's how it goes. Oh, my dear, my very dear Wormwood, my poppet, my pig sny, how mistakenly now that all is lost you come whimpering to ask me whether the terms of affection of which I addressed you meant nothing. Oh, far from it. Rest assured, my love for you and your love for me are as like as two peas. I have always desired you, you pitiful fool, just as you desired me. The difference is that I'm stronger. And I think they will give you to me now. Love you? Oh, why, yes. As dainty a morsel as ever I grew fat on. Your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. <laughs> what did Wormwood want from his uncle? As soon as I get the upper hand, I'm going to devour you. What did Screwtape want of his nephew? As soon as I get the opportunity, I'm going to devour you. And that's what communities come if we allow worldly wisdom to guide our actions. Any community 
that allows itself to just give in to worldly, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance is going to be filled with, look at verse 16, disorder and every evil thing. Uh, this word disorder means violent riots. Jesus used it when he said towards the end time there's going to be wars and disturbances. That sign of the violent chaos that's going to precede the return of Christ, that's what happens to communities when we give in to that demonic lower wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I am afraid that when I come I may find that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. When we listen to the world's lower wisdom, when we just give in to our flesh, when we allow je jealousy and pride and ambition to dictate our actions, there is disorder and there is every evil thing like disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, jealousy. We've all experienced this in our schools, in our workplaces, maybe in our families. This isn't the community that we want. But this is the community that the devil wants for us. So in Greek mythology, there was a goddess of discord named Eris. And Eris was upset because she was uninvited to a particular wedding. So she came in disguise and dropped among the gathering a golden apple labeled for the fairest. Well, immediately three goddesses compete with, I'm the fairest. And so Hera, the wife of Zeus, and Aphrodite, and who is the third one? A third goddess. All jump on the apple because each claimed to be the fairest of all the goddesses. And there was contention. And so they asked for Zeus to pick who was the fairest, and he was too shrewd to do that. And so it fell to Paris, the prince of Troy, and they each bribed him. If you will say that I am the fairest, I will give you wisdom. If you say that I am the fairest, I will give you victory and riches. But Aphrodite bribed him with the most beautiful woman in the world. Anyone know her name? Helen of Troy. And so Paris abducted Helen of Troy, which launched 10 years of the Trojan War, which decimated his city, which killed Paris. How did discord sow her vengeance on the gods? She just dropped an apple in the midst and let them fight it out. Because what did they all have in common? They were all arrogant, ambitious, and jealous. And may I just tell you that the devil loves to drop little apples in churches that says, for the brightest, for the most righteous, for the biggest giver, for the parent with the best kids, for those who think they have the best marriage, for the most knowledgeable, for the most orthodox, for the best teacher, for the most evangelistic, for the most busy, for the most active. And he drops these little apples in our midst. And what do we do? We vie over them. Surely they're talking of me. You remember Jesus three times with his disciples as he was moving his way towards Jerusalem to sacrifice himself on the cross, to bend down and to wash their feet? And what were they doing in the meanwhile? While they were arguing among themselves as to which of them was the greatest. In the upper room, after Jesus Christ has offered them the new covenant, talked about the new uh, Lord's Supper that he is going to manifest, they are arguing among themselves which of them is the greatest, and that wasn't the first time they had that argument. And so he gets down, he disrobes, and he bends at their feet, and he washes their feet, and to show them those who are greatest among you will be the humblest, will be the lowest. Don't seek the foremost positions at the banquets, but rather take the lowest seat.
because that's the wisdom from above. But whenever we allow ourselves to make our decisions based on bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance, there is going to be discord and every evil thing. And this church is not exempt. And so instead, we must listen to the wisdom from above that James describes in 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above, and by that he means from God. He had said in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. What is the source of true wisdom? It's God. And where does God most clearly and fully reveal that wisdom? In his word. So Nock and I were sitting yesterday with a couple who've been married, uh, I think, 40 years plus. And I asked them the best and the worst wisdom that they received. And the husband says, well, I just purge bad wisdom out of my mind, which is a great attribute if you can do it. But the wife said the best wisdom I ever got was from my mother-in-law that said, well, the worst wisdom she received was the first 10 years of marriage is going to be terrible. A woman who was unhappy in her marriage told this bride-to-be the first decade is going to be torment. But if you can survive it, then you'll enjoy some good things. Can you imagine saying that to a young fiancé? But the best advice came from her mother-in-law, who said, don't go to books, don't go to counselors, don't go to sessions, go to God's Word. And God will tell you how to have a good marriage. God will tell you how to be a good wife. God will tell you how to be a good mama, how to be a good woman. And she said, and that advice drove me to God's Word, and it showed me I feel angry. What does God say about my anger? Be slow to anger because it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. When I struggled with this, I went to God's Word, and her advice drove her to God's Word that taught her how to handle various situations in her marriage. And there's always difficulties in every marriage, but it transformed her. That was good counsel. So the wisdom comes from above that is primarily found in God's Word. And apart from this source, we were given seven characteristics to know if the counsel we are considering heeding is from above or below. First of all, it's pure. It's holy. It's sacred. It's uncorrupted by sin. It's righteous. It's good. Secondly, it's peaceable, meaning it's pacific. It's irenic. It leads to harmonious, unifying, loving relationships between people. Any advice that causes conflict and discord is bad advice. That which leads to peace and to unity and harmony, that comes from above. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. God is a peacemaker. He's a reconciler. He sent His Son to die to reconcile sinners with Himself. And if we want to be His children, if we want to be like our Father in heaven, then we will be peacemakers as well. Thirdly, gentle. It's deferent. It's humble. It's putting myself behind you. It's giving up so that you can have. Um, I was talking to a sister this week about something and she was saying, you know, sometimes I ask myself, what am I going to get out of this? And immediately we just knew, but that's not the right question. It's what can I give to this? We come to church not saying, what do I get out of it? Well, what can I give to it? But by offering to give and coming to give, we get more than we ever would have expected and certainly would have enjoyed or, or certainly deserved. We have to be gentle. It's reasonable, meaning it's compliant, it's obedient, it's orderly. It's not rebellious and insubordinate. It's full of mercy. And that mercy is full of good fruits. Godly wisdom is compassionate. It cares for people. It's concerned for people. 
and that concern and that compassion drive it to charitable good deeds. Here's someone hungry. I can feed them. Here's someone overwhelmed. Maybe I can help them. Here's someone struggling. Maybe I can give to them. How can I, how can I manifest the love of God to them in a practical way? It's unwavering. It's firm. It's fixed. It's committed. It's loyal. It's faithful. It doesn't just seek the easy way out when things get hard. And it's without hypocrisy. It's genuine. It's authentic. It's real. It's true. These seven characteristics are good indicators that that wisdom is from above. That's exactly what I should do in this context. But if we smell that ugly odor of bitter jealousy, of selfish ambition, or of arrogance, if we ask ourselves, now why am I really doing this? Is it because my pride was hurt? Because my ego was bruised? Is it because I really want to get my way rather than helping them get their way? Is it because I resent their success and I think I deserve that more? Then that's a good indicator that that's from below and we need to avoid it. Because the fruit of the wisdom from above is righteousness when it's sown in peace by those who make peace. We sow this wise seed hoping to bear up righteousness, both in the sense of attracting them to the Savior, who when we confess that we are sinners and receive Him into our life, that His righteousness is reckoned to our behalf. But then once we become children of God, we are to become more Christ-like, to become more righteous. And the proper environment, the proper soil for that kind of growth in righteousness, both forensic and sanctifying, is peaceful communities. It's sown peacefully by those who are pursuing peace. We as a church are going to be tempted every time we gather and in every one of our meetings to let our pride, our ambition, and our jealousy lead to discord and every evil thing. The alternative is to ignore that and instead to heed only the wisdom from above. And then we can have peace and righteousness and joy and the community that all of us want, what the world is crying for. That's what we aspire to. We see an example of good or bad in this in the Old Testament. Uh, you may remember when King David had to flee King Saul and he was living with his men out on the hillside. And there they found themselves guarding the sheep of a particular man whose name means fool, Nabal. And David, after a season of staying up late and guarding the sheep, and if anything was lost, he bore that loss upon himself, sought, we would like a little compensation for our goodness and therefore, can we have some bread and some food? Some acknowledgement of the good that we've done you. And Nabal rejected this, refused to give anything. David said when he heard the news, put on your swords, we're going to go down, and we are going to smite every one of that wicked man's servants dead. We are going to devastate that ungrateful community who would not acknowledge the good that we did them. But then there was this wise woman, Abigail, and Abigail went with wine, with bread, with food, and humbly bent down and said, Oh Lord, you know that my husband is a fool. Rightly is he named Nabal. Spare him so that when you become king, you won't have blood on your hands. And what did David do in his humility? He humbled himself. He knew that this would have felt good to go down in righteous indignation and to smite this ungrateful man and his men would have benefited from it and everything in his flesh, everything in the world, everything by the devil said, go down and wreak your vengeance. But David knew that was wisdom from below. 
And instead, he heeded the wisdom from above, and God honored that. God honored that. Conversely, after first Saul and then David and then Solomon are used by God to establish a kingdom of Israel, and then they have peace and they have unity and they have wealth, and then Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, goes to Shechem to be anointed king, not just by Judah, his tribe, but by the northern tribes of Israel. And they gather before him and they say, your father was harsh. Your father was ungentle. If you will simply loosen the yoke, if you will be reasonable, then we will serve you as king. And he said, give me three days to think about it, then we come back and I'll give you the answer. So first he sought the counsel of his dad's advisors, of the older, wiser men. And they said, O king, if you will listen to the words of these men and lighten the yoke and be softer and gentler and more reasonable, then they will serve you forever. But then he listened to his peers. Then he listened to the young men who said, what you should tell them, you think my dad was harsh. He punished you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions, meaning not just a lash, but a lash with embedded metal and nails. And Rehoboam, three days later, Israel comes back and he comes out and... Anybody know who he listened to? He listened to the young people. It feels good to stand strong. You think my dad was tough. Wait do you feel this. And he spoke in indignation, and he spoke and warned them, I'm going to be even harsher, even less gentle. And in his pride, in his arrogance, in his ambition, in his jealousy, he split the nation forever. Because when they heard those foolish words, they cried out, Everyone to your tents, O Israel. And the nation split, and it has never come back together again. God will restore it someday in a different form. But centuries of efforts, centuries of fighting, centuries of sacrifice, centuries of labor, all were wasted in a moment of folly because the king listened to foolish wisdom from below rather than righteous wisdom from above. We claim to be wise and understanding. We claim to have divine wisdom of God. But we must show it in our good behavior and in our gentle deeds. And every day the world is going to whisper to us, do it this way. And our flesh is going to say, oh, that sounds right. That feels good. And oftentimes behind that is the devil just dropping little apples in our marriages, in our parenting, in our homes, in our churches, in our ministries, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, so that we will fight over them. Because where there is bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance, there is discord and every evil thing. But if we will ignore that wisdom and listen instead to the wisdom from above that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, then the seed whose fruit is righteousness will be sown in peace by those who make peace, and we will enjoy the righteous, peaceful community that all of us long for. Would you pray with me? Father, this is both a discouraging and an encouraging word. Uh, we first of all thank you for revealing yourself through your spirit in the inspired and errant scriptures that you have given us divine wisdom from a good God who wants peace and righteousness and every good thing for your children. And you lay it out on what that looks like in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And yet, Father, we also confess that oftentimes we profess what we practice, what we don't practice. So, Lord, would you help us 
to prove our wisdom in our good behavior and deeds of gentleness. Father, we confess that we have all experienced bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. We struggle with these things regularly, for we are fallen, we live in a fallen world, and we are susceptible to the wicked whispers of fallen angels. So forgive us, even for the things perhaps we've done this morning, this week. Forgive us, and help us instead to heed the wisdom from above, that which is pure, gentle, peaceable, righteous. Guard our community. Let us love one another as Christ loved us, and let that love be our witness in our community that lives in such strife and discord because they're going about it the world's way. Let us offer a better way. And let them come to the Savior who bids all come. He is meek, He is gentle. Make us meek and gentle as well. Make us wise and understanding. And let this be proven in the decisions we make and the relationships we're in. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.